Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. are in week three of our series. We're in a series where we're looking at the book of Revelation, and not the whole book, but the first couple chapters of the book, there are these letters that are written to some churches in Asia, seven churches. And the reason that we're looking at this is because we think that what Jesus has to say to these seven churches is applicable to our churches here, now, and today. And we gather in community to kind of discern what that is. So we're going to talk about that this morning. But first, we're going to look at a map. So if we put the map up on the screen, I just want to remind us where are these churches. All right? So they're in what we would say is modern-day Turkey, and we're going right in order. So we did one, two, and this morning we're on three, Pergamum. And as we talked about, there's kind of some interesting vocabulary in the book of Revelation. So this morning, we're going to have our first vocab pop quiz. All right? So let's put our terms up on the screen. Our first one is the seven golden lampstands. Anybody remember what that is? The churches. Excellent. All right. What are the seven stars in Jesus' hand? The angels and the angels of the church. What are those? Pastors. Or even it could be a literal guardian angel, right? The word angelos means messenger. So it could mean an actual guardian angel or it could mean the messenger of the church, a pastor. All right. Great job. I'm very impressed. Well done. All right. Let's go ahead, and if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to read it together, and then we're going to work through it kind of in chunks like we've been doing. Well, starting in verse 12, it says this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where the great throne of Satan is located, and yet you have remained loyal to me, and you refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful servant, my faithful witness, was martyred among you by Satan's followers. And yet, I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are like Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to worship idols by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you have some Nicolaitans among you, people who follow the same teaching and commit the same sins. Repent, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the spirits and understand what the spirit is saying to the churches. Everyone who is victorious will eat of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay. So let's just start right at the beginning. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. Now, one of the things that we want to remember is when this letter was written and to who it was written to, they would have been under Roman occupation. 
So every single day, they're gonna see Roman soldiers walking around. Roman soldiers are enforcing the rules. Roman soldiers are often taking advantage of the situation. They might be beating on people. There's no one holding them accountable. And what does a Roman soldier wear but a sword at their waist at all times? So this vivid picture of a sword is a, is a very vivid reminder to them constantly. They see swords every day, sometimes every hour, always walking by them. They would remember that this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this refers back to some words from Isaiah. And so this greeting, just like the one last week, goes way back. So if you want to go to Isaiah chapter 11 with me, you can, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the sword of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And then also to Isaiah chapter 49. It says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. These are the verses that John and Jesus are referring to when they write this letter. These are prophecies that the Jewish people, and it's primarily Jews who are converting to Christianity, would have been very familiar with. A sharp sword and a polished arrow, they're almost perfect. The sharp sword cuts cleanly, like through butter, right? Sharp sword, the polished arrow, there's no drag, It flies true to its target. One of the things that we fail to talk about and often fail to remember is that there is judgment. There's no way to change that. That is a part of this book. That is a part of the history. That is a part of what we're being told by God. There is judgment. Jesus is the judge. We would be silly to forget that. There will come a day when we and everyone else will stand before the judge. The good news is that you and I aren't the judge. The good news is that the perfect lamb of God, who loves this world so much that he hung on a tree for it, that is the judge. That's the wonderful, blessed good news, is that Jesus is the judge. But do not forget, there is a time of judgment. And that's what this verse is reminding us. There is a time. Jesus does hold the church accountable. Jesus holds his people accountable. He is the one with a sharp two-edged sword. Remember, one of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago is that our forgiveness is intimately linked with the way that we forgive others. Loving others and loving God are intimately linked. There's a two-edged sword here. So often the very things that we are spouting out to one another, this verse that we're telling you, this thing that we're telling you you shouldn't do or shouldn't be about or don't say that thing, that same two-edged sword is going to come back to us at some point. That's why we have teachings about removing the plank from your eye before judging the speck in someone else's. Our forgiveness is linked to our forgiveness of others. Don't forget the correlation. Let's keep going. Jesus says, I know that you live in the city 
where Satan has his throne, and yet you've remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. Pergamum. It's our last port city. When you look at the map there, there was three cities right on the coast, and these three cities were really wealthy, and they vied to be the number one Roman city in Asia. Pergamum is one of them. Pergamum was, was very wealthy, filled with beautiful art, temples to worship Zeus and Dionysus, as well as, obviously, the Roman government saying Caesar is God. So bow down and worship Caesar as God. In many ways, Pergamum bought in to that Roman occupation, to the Roman way of life, more than even Ephesus and Smyrna did. So much so that we know of Pergamum as the compromising church. That's its nickname, the compromising church. They've compromised themselves to buy into this, this Roman occupation. And so Jesus addresses the city as the throne of Satan, and we believe it's a direct reference to how they've bought into that. The throne of Satan would be Rome. Now, the first thing that Jesus says is, I know where you live. I think about that. I know where you live. I've heard that said in a movie before, and it was like a threat. It's meant to scare you. I know where you live, right? I think a teacher said that a time or two to me. That sort of statement normally drives fear into a person's heart, but here it's not meant to drive fear. It's a promise. It's an encouragement because it reminds us of the power of the incarnation. The incarnation is the word that we use to describe God with us. When the angel comes to Mary and says, you're pregnant and you're going to give birth to the Messiah, she says, I want you to name, or he says, I want you to name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One of the most incredible things that sets the Christian faith apart is the fact that we have an incarnational God, that he sent his one and only son here among us to move among us. Philippians 2, the apostle Paul is encouraging the people of Philippi. He wants them to remain humble. And so he uses Jesus as an example. He says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just for a moment, consider what Paul is saying. Jesus, who being in very nature is just like God, came, lowered himself as a human, as a, as a baby, as an innocent baby, who then remained a human. And when he could have called on his powers, he did not call on his powers. And he was obedient to what God was leading him to, even to death, death on a cross, death as a criminal. 
He lowered himself to our level. He was incarnational. He made his dwelling here and among us. We don't serve some distant God, some God that's sitting up there with a magnifying glass and we're just a bunch of ants. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve has a relationship with you, wants a relationship with you. He moves among us. Half the reason we do those vocab words at the beginning is to remind us that the reason God knows what's going on in these churches is because he moves among the seven lampstands. God is still with us today. So when we read in Revelation and God says, Jesus says, I know where you live, we should be encouraged because he understands the beauty of this world and he understands the hardships of this world. The hard thing that you're in right now, he gets it. That beautiful thing that you appreciated yesterday, he gets it because he's here, he's been here. Jesus commends the church. I know where you live, and you didn't renounce your faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Now, last week we talked about a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was the first bishop in Smyrna, Antipas was also the first bishop in Pergamum. Antipas was a doctor by trade. He was a healer, well-known in the area. And Antipas would even cast demons out of people when needed. He wasn't ashamed of his belief in Christ, but he was found to be propagating Christianity, spreading it, telling other people about it. And what did we learn last week? Rome had a rule. No new religions. So as Rome began to discover that Christianity and Judaism are not the same thing, oh, it became a problem for the Christians. I want you to think today how rare it is when you talk to a doctor and a doctor brings up Jesus. When a doctor brings up that you could be healed, it's pretty rare because they get in trouble for that sort of stuff. Even here now and today, you get in trouble for that sort of stuff. Way back then, other physicians accused Antipas of disloyalty to Caesar because he didn't believe Caesar was God. So Antipas was put inside a copper bull, and the bull was heated until the bull became red hot. That is how Antipas died. I want you to think about that. I'm not telling you to gross you out. I just want you to consider for a moment what it might be like to live today and see your church leader, your bishop, dragged through the street and executed in an awful, awful manner. The reason that Jesus is so encouraged by the church in Pergamum is because they watched their friend, their teacher, their brother executed awfully. And even so, they remained faithful. Even so, they continued to come together and gather together and study the word. They still remained a church. Would you have the courage to do the same? If you knew that by simply believing, by talking about Jesus, that you could be put to death, and not just put to death, but executed in a terrible manner, would you have the courage to carry on? Would our church community have the courage to carry on? Because that's the world that this church lives in. Every moment, the Roman government could come down on them simply for being, simply for meeting, and yet they remain faithful, yet they continue on, even though they could be ended like that. Would we have the courage to continue on?
we're going to keep going. The next part says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I want to take a moment to pause here because one of the things that we've been talking about through this series is prophecy. So if you can go to the next slide for me, I have something highlighted in yellow. This is a prophetic word. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a forward, a future statement who's directly concerned with changing the present. Is it a prediction of the future? Absolutely. What is it concerned about? Changing the present. So what do they need to do? They need to repent. If they don't repent, what's going to happen? The judgment we just talked about. It will be swift and it will be severe. This is a prophetic word, and I want to point out, this is where it appears in the passage. Now, I want to tell you a story. If you notice the bulletin today, it's called, the sermon's called Poison, which I'm sure excited everybody when I hear a poisonous sermon. Early in our marriage, Chris and I lived in this old log home, several, not several hundred years old, but more than a hundred years old, very old, ceilings very low, walls falling apart, but you know what? That was where we lived. That was our home. And one night, uh, Carissa was upstairs in her office, and I was downstairs cleaning the kitchen. And I got most of everything done. I had two things left. I had to clean the kitchen sink and the coffee maker. I really just wanted to sit down and watch some television. That was my, that was my goal here. So cleaning a coffee maker is actually pretty easy, right? Take some vinegar, pour it in there, fill up the reservoir, run that vinegar through, and you do that until you get nice, clear vinegar. Well, then you fall out with water. Don't just leave the vinegar in there. Coffee will taste really bad. Water after that. But to clean it, run the vinegar through. The kitchen sink, though, that's going to require a whole lot of scrubbing. Scrubbing I really didn't want to do. And you know it gets that buildup in the bottom that's kind of nasty, and there's probably all sorts of bacteria down there. So I had a bright idea. Why don't I take a gallon jug of bleach, stop up the sink, and just let the gallon jug of bleach sit in there, and it'll just, it'll do the work for me, right? It's gonna get all the bacteria out, it's gonna clean it up. So I thought that was great. So I stopped up the sink, I put the, the bleach in there, I got a gallon of bleach sitting in there. I run my first pot of vinegar through, well, where do I put that? I only have one sink. So I dump that in the sink, I run a second pot of vinegar through, and I dump that in the sink, and a third pot, oh, it came out clear, that's good. So I'd run that through and i dump it in the sink. And I thought, you know what? I'll just let it all sit because it's probably gonna do really good work for me in the sink. So then I went into the living room and I sat down and started to watch some, some TV. And I'm sitting there watching the television and, you know, I just, my eyes burned a little bit. I thought, <laughs> it's, it's been a really long day. I'm just, I'm really tired, you know? So as I watch the TV, the TV starts to get a little bit blurry. And I don't know about you, if I sit down and watch TV at nighttime, I'm going to fall asleep. So I keep thinking, I just, I need some rest. I just need to fall asleep. So just as I'm about to fall asleep, Carissa comes down the stairs and she goes, hey, what's that smell? And then she turns the corner and goes, what is all the fog in here? <laughs> Did you know that if you mix vinegar and bleach, you create chlorine gas? Did you know that? <laughs> chlorine gas is the same gas they use in World War I as a chemical weapon. 
So all of you out there are gonna go clean your kitchen sink tonight. Don't do it the way I did, because I sort of, maybe a little bit by accident, poisoned my wife and I. And I'm sitting there on the couch thinking that I'm just tired because I'm in this fog that's all through the downstairs of our house, and it's not until somebody who's not in it comes down and says, what is going on? It takes someone from the outside coming in to say, did you know that you're sitting in a whole bunch of poison? (laughs) The church in Pergamum is named the compromising church. Compromising often happens slowly. And often we're so close to it, we don't even see it happening. We're sitting in the middle of it. We can't even tell until somebody else comes along and say, hey, you've changed. Let's talk about compromise for a second. A bad compromise is when you change yourself so you become less of your full, authentic self. All right? It's a change that moves you away from living life to the fullest. So an example of that would be going against your morals to be accepted by a group of people. That's bad compromise. There's also good compromise. And good compromise is when you change to grow into that full self. You're growing into life to the fullest. So moving away from lying toward truthfulness, this is good compromise. Sometimes we don't even know that it's happening until it's too late because we're so close to the situation. When I met my wife, my view of money was, I work hard for it, it's my money. My wife had a significantly more generous understanding of what money was, all right, which is amazing. It's partially the reason I fell in love with her because of the way she loves on others, but that took a while for me to move towards. I'm trying still. Hopefully I have. But that is a move toward living life to the fullest. That is a good compromise. Sometimes the change is bad, guys. I was talking with my brother-in-law this week, and, um, and he used to be, well, we were talking, and he said something I just had to write down. So here's the backstory. My brother-in-law used to be, a, he was a musician. He still is a musician. You're never not a musician. Uh, he was in a bunch of bands. He was in the hardcore music scene. Uh, and he loved it. You know, the mosh pits, I mean, everything. Really hardcore stuff. And, uh, and we were talking, and he was kind of reflecting on that. You know, he's all grown up now. He's got kids and a wife and all that stuff. And, and he was saying, you know, I think I'd like to go back to one of those shows sometime. I was like, oh, yeah? He's like, yeah, and I want to get a shirt made. And the shirt's going to say, I dress like this at the expense of my morals and values so that I feel accepted. I wrote that down because that is true of every single person here. If I just change it a little bit, I blank to belong even at the expense of my morals and my values. What do you fill that blank with? What do you do at the expense of your morals and values so that you can fit in The way that you spend your money, you know you can't afford something, but you go get it anyway because so-and-so down the street or your friend says, I'm going to get it. So you have to get it too. It goes on your credit card, causes a problem. How about the way you treat people? You're in a group of people that are saying some terrible stuff. That person's not even here. They're just talking about them, and so you join in so that you can fit in. Sometimes it's literally clothes that we wear. We can't afford. doesn't resemble who we really are, but we put it on to play a part 
at the expense of our morals and our values. We compromise. Slowly, but surely. It isn't until somebody comes along and says, hey, you're different, that we see it. The same is true of our churches, folks. We compromise as a church. We fill that blank with something so that we can look like the next church, we can sound like the next church. We compromise all of the time. How are we compromising? Because this letter is written to the compromising church. And if we're going to be honest about what this letter, what the Spirit is saying to us this morning and today, we need to do some hard reflection on how we have compromised as individuals and how we have compromised as a community. If somebody walked in the door and said, whoa, you've changed. Some of that change is good. but Some of it might not be. Are we willing to actually do the hard work of looking and saying, you're right. Maybe we did. Now all of this talk about compromise and poison, that's all leading us to this verse about a guy named Balaam. And you may go, well, who in the world is Balaam? Well, I'm gonna tell you who Balaam is. Balaam is in the book of Numbers. So if you wanna go to the beginning of your Bible, you can. I'm not going to read out of it. I'm just going to give you a synopsis of who he is. But uh, around Numbers 22 to 30, somewhere in that range, is the story of Balaam. Balaam, uh, well, if we go back to Numbers, we see that in the time of Moses, the Israelite people have gotten massive. Okay? They keep having babies and raising babies and more and more people, and they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The people group is so big that there are kings and kingdoms that are terrified of the Israelites, not because they have the most powerful army, because they have the most people. And so if the Israelites were motivated toward any one people group, they would probably be able to win simply on sheer numbers alone. So there's a bunch of kings and kingdoms that don't like the Israelites because they're scared. If they wanted to, they could conquer us. So there's this one king whose name is Balak. And King Balak decides he's going to hire out a sorcerer known as Balaam. Balaam seems to have this knack for his curses and blessings always to work. So Balak he sends a messenger to Balaam and says, look, I'm going to pay you a lot of money. And what I want you to do is I want you to curse the Israelites. That's all you got to do. Lots of money. And Balaam says, all right, well, I first have to consult with the Lord, which might sound weird. He's a sorcerer. Balaam's not a true follower of God. But he knows that the Lord, he knows that God is the most powerful being there is. And so Balaam always consults with God. So Balaam goes to God. And he says, I want to curse these people. Can I curse these people? And God says, well, no, those are my people. They're my blessed people. You may not curse them. And so Balaam comes back and tells the king's messenger, well, Lord said no, so I can't do it. Sounds like a good story, right? A guy who doesn't follow God, recognizes how powerful God is, listens to God. doesn't end there. King Balak sends another messenger with a lot more money because everybody has their price. He offers Balak more silver and more gold if he'll just curse the Israelites. And so Balaam, enticed by the money, says, well, let me go back and ask God again. Maybe God changed his mind. You never know. So he goes back to God, and God hasn't changed his mind. In fact, God's pretty upset that Balaam doesn't let his first answer be his answer. 
So, so God says, Balaam, go ahead. Go to King Balak. So Balaam gets on his donkey, and he sets off for King Balak. And on the way, God sends an angel with a sword in his hand to kill Balaam for disobeying. Balaam cannot see the angel, but the donkey can. So as they're on the path, and the donkey comes around the corner, and the donkey sees the angel with the sword in his hand, the donkey tries to turn around and get off the path. And Balaam beats the donkey until the donkey's back on. Three times the donkey tries to get off the path. Three times he beats him until he gets back on. And that's when God opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? You've ridden me all this time for all these years. I've never done anything like this. Why are you beating me? Can you not see that I'm trying to save your life? And that's when God opens up Balaam's eyes and Balaam can see the angel in front of him waiting. Well, this changes everything. Rather than curse the Israelites when Balaam gets to Balak, he blesses them three times. Balak is furious. Now, you would think, again, that this is great. He learned his lesson, new way of life, maybe even became a God follower. Not so much. He's still concerned with money. He's still concerned with profit. And in the next couple of chapters, Balaam actually leads God's people into idol worship and sexual sin. And for that, the Israelites will kill him. They will end his life. So Balaam's, Balaam's history is not a good one. Balaam tried to profit from the work of God. Balaam didn't let God's answer be God's answer. He led people into sexual sin and idol worship. And so when Jesus writes this letter, the people in Pergamum, he's talking about Balaamites. He's talking about people who are like Balaam, the Nicolaitans. And we talked about the Nicolaitans back when we talked about Ephesus because the Nicolaitans were there too. There was a guy named Nicholas in Jerusalem and he taught some stupid stuff and people followed it. It got them into sexual sin. It got them into idol worship. And Jesus is saying, you have these same people in your church. If you don't get rid of them, then the judgment is going to come. The two-edged sword, I'm going to bring it, and it's not going to be good. Can you understand why it is so important to guard ourselves? Can you understand why it is important for us as followers of Jesus to be familiar with Scripture? That we should be familiar enough with this to know when somebody comes teaching something that is wrong, we can say, that's wrong. That's not right. And if you're not sure, here's the beautiful thing. You have a community of people who you can say, I'm not sure about that thing I heard today. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I was worried about that too. Well, maybe we can look together to see if that's right. That is one of the reasons that we gather in community. We need to guard ourselves. We need to be familiar with scripture. We need to know who God is. Because if we don't, there are people out there who can and will and are trying to lead you astray. And the compromise happens so slowly sometimes we never see it. We are sitting in the poison and there's nobody coming along to open a window for us. Guys, we have to do better at this. We have to be invested in this stuff. We have to know who we are in Christ. We have to know who we are in Christ. If we don't, 
We're going to be taken for fools. And I'm not trying to put fear in you. It's just, that's the world we live in. Even things that feel innocuous, like a billboard and a radio ad and a commercial on TV, all these things lead us in a direction. All of these things work their way into our hearts and our minds, and slowly we become more accepting of this or open to that, and we're getting ourselves into trouble because of it. We need to be rooted in this. We need to be rooted in this relationship. We have to know who we are in Jesus. We have to. The last chunk here of Scripture says this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. This last part is a promise I love these seven letters so much (laughs) because Jesus says, here's what I love about what you're doing. Here's what I have a problem with. Here's the promise for the future. This is the promise for the future to the person who is victorious, to those who have ears to hear. And I pray this morning that we have ears to hear how God is speaking to us as individuals and how God is speaking to us as a church. But to those who have ears to hear what Jesus is saying, those who are willing to repent when they're going in the wrong direction, to head in the right direction, to those who commit to a relationship with Jesus, to those who are victorious, he will give manna. Manna is a food that fell from the heavens while the Israelites wandered. And they're the last leg. They had no food. What were they to do but depend on God? And how did God supply their need? He let food fall from heaven. And the Israelites picked it up and said, what is this? And that's literally what the word manna means. It means, what is this? They never got any further than that. He's promising us manna. He's saying, your needs will be met for eternity. I have forever manna. All through the Gospels, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no other way to go but through me. I am the river of life. I have the water. He's promising sustenance forever. Here is the manna. When you need it, it's here. He will sustain you for all of eternity. Your needs will be met. That is the future promise. And we can stand on that. We can love that. But here's what I love even more than the manna. He promises a new name on a white stone. A new name on a white stone. So I want to finish with this thought this morning. In biblical times, if you were going before a judiciary committee of some kind that was going to decide whether you were innocent or guilty, each judge would have a white stone and a black stone. And they determined that you were guilty, they would put out the black stone. If they determined that you were not guilty, that you were innocent, they would put out the white stone. This is the way the world worked in the time of this letter. I want you to think about the way that we judge one another, about the way that you judge yourself 
I want you to think about who you are. Our names have so much junk attached to them, so much history attached to them. And we're judged for it. Impure thoughts. Your marriage isn't what it's supposed to be. You lied, cheated, smoking, drinking, you name it. Over and over, we're given these black stones. We give them to ourselves all the time. We call ourselves guilty. Every person who showed up here today comes with a past. We've been the person who's hurt. We've been the person who's hurting. We've been the victim. We've been the perpetrator. We all have a past. And I can't speak for your church experience, but I can speak for my church experience growing up. I know that when I came to church, I didn't feel holy. I felt awful. I felt like scum. When I went to church, I felt dirty. And my experience in going to church was that they kept handing me black stones and telling me to worship. I listened to a podcast this week about a guy named Michael Gunger. Maybe you've heard. Michael Gunger is a a musician. And years back, he started this band called Gunger. Christian band. It kind of took the world by storm. Lots of these songs came out. People loved them. Beautiful things. Maybe you've heard beautiful things before. That's a, a song by them. Well, Michael Gunger went through a phase where he could not seem to find faith in God. He walked away. He, he called himself an atheist. He said he couldn't believe anymore. And when he did this, the world hated on him. And I, I want to say this really clearly too. Not just the world, but the church. Christians hated on him because he turned away. They mistreated him. They abused his name. Magazines wrote articles. People talked about him. He was sermon illustration after sermon illustration of somebody who turned their back on God. His name became synonymous with all of this junk. So as Michael Gungor from the band Gungor is back and trying to figure out his faith, as he's working with someone who's discipling him back into the arms of God, his name has all this nasty stuff that is caught in it and tied up with it. And this mentor tells him he could have a new name. So the mentor says, hey, as a gift, I want to give you a new name. You don't have to take it if you don't want to. But I just feel like God is leading me to give you the name Vishnu, which means servant of God. A mentor who saw how much hurt and pain and baggage was simply associated with his name gave him a new name, a name that's free of baggage. A name that is an innocent, unblemished name is given to him. Does he go by Vishnu? No. He goes by Michael Gunger. But the process of being given this name helped redeem his own name for himself. Finally, he had an identity that was not caught up in all of this stuff from his past. We all have a past. And when we look at this book, we have a pattern of a loving, caring, invested, incarnational God who comes to his people and is constantly giving new names. 
I want you to think about a Pharisee whose name is Saul, who's hunting down Christians. He's murdering people, folks. And he comes and he sees a great white light that knocks him off of his donkey. He's blinded and he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, a new name I give to you. You will be Paul. Paul. That doesn't strike fear into the heart of Christians. Saul's the bad guy. Who's the Paul? Paul doesn't have a record. Peter. Peter started out as Simon. One who has seen. And when the one who has seen saw the Messiah, and God said, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Messiah. God is ready with a new name. You're going to be Peter. I'm going to build my church on your rock. Think about a man named Abram. Abram, who just wanted to have children, and when he's 99, God comes to him and says, you will be a father of all nations. And so have a new name, Abraham. How about somebody named Jacob who just didn't want to be Jacob, who was so intent on being anyone else that he stole his brother's blessing. He pretended to be him. He put skin and stuff on his arms so his dad would think he was somebody else. Jacob, who left the country, who was terrified to come home when he's finally ready to come home. He's finally ready to be Jacob. He wrestles all night with an angel, even to the point where the angel knocks his hip from his socket. He still won't let go. And the angel looks at him and says, you are no longer Jacob. Jacob, you are Israel, for you have struggled with both man and God and one. We serve a God who renames us, who gives us a new identity. You are a new creation. Oh, you're a new creation. And so when we look at this passage in Revelation, at the very end, Jesus is saying, I'm going to sustain you forever. And I declare that you are innocent and all the junk that is tied up with your name, all the junk that is, it's a rock weighing you down. I have a new name for you, and it's a secret only known to you and to me, so that way nobody can attach any baggage to it. When we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. That is the community that we need to be. In this world, in this place, to this community, to one another, we are a place where you can come and you can be loved on. And we are going to love you so well because we know that the way we love you is how we love God. And we know that you can be forgiven because our forgiveness is so tied in the way that we forgive and we know that all the stuff that's been tied to your name, all the stuff that's in your past, it is your past because when you believe, when you repent, when you come to know Jesus, you are given this new name that has none of that. Jesus dumps out all of these black rocks and he gives you clean. Friends, Christianity following God is a long obedience in a single direction. But the first step is really that easy. I want to encourage anyone that needs to take it to take it. I want to encourage anybody that needs prayer because they have stuff, they have these rocks that they keep carrying around to let them go this morning. If you need prayer, I want to give it. You are new. And my only prayer for us this morning is that we would have ears to hear what God is saying to you and to us. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. 
I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.